Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Book Pod with Corey Perkin, the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boona Wurrung Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hi everyone, welcome to today's episode of The Book Pod. Corrie Perkin here with you and today we venture into the garden with our guest, renowned landscape designer Fiona Brockoff. Fiona is a Melbourne-based designer, but she has worked across southeastern Australia, in particular along her beloved Mornington Peninsula south of Melbourne and just on the other side of Port Phillip Bay. The Mornington Peninsula features mightily in Fiona's new book, a sumptuous hardcover published by Hardy Grant and called With Nature, Garden Design by Fiona Brockoff. A book, she writes in the introduction, is a book, quote, for garden makers and land carers far and wide. Fiona, welcome to the book pod. And I have to apologise to our listeners too. If you hear tap, tap, tap on the floor, it is my dog Panda who has fallen in love with Fiona and is walking around as we speak. (laughs) Big bouquets of beautiful native flowers to you for this beautiful book. Thanks, Corrie. It's really lovely to be here. I really loved it and I loved, very much loved the autobiographical nature of it. It's really you on every page. Thank you. Well, I think writing in that narrative style really engages people from the beginning and I didn't want it to be another design book about how to make beautiful gardens. I really wanted to tell my story to people and to engage them from the very beginning. Well you've certainly done that but it also is a beautiful design book. I loved in the introduction that term land carers because as I read your book I think that phrase for me is an overarching philosophy that really hits home as I read it. The message is so apparent because you're reminding us of the craft of gardening and garden design but also being very aware of what Mother Nature has given us to work with and being very respectful of that. That's right and I think from my very early childhood with having a lot of engagement in our garden and our garden spaces and interaction with nature at soon became very apparent to me that it was really important to be able to look after not just your garden but care for the broader environment and particularly nature. So as I became a landscape designer I really gave that a lot of thought about how we could integrate as much as nature had to offer into 
clients' gardens, but also to use nature as a learning tool. And I think through my love of hiking and, and, and bushwalking, I've really sort of learnt to look at nature with different eyes and to re- really be observant and to look at how things grow in their natural environment and then try and take some of those lessons into the home garden and walking in the Mornington Peninsula National Park down here, you've got that opportunity to observe how nature and particularly wind and salt-laden wind shapes plants and that informed a lot of my knowledge or I guess, you know, I could then take that into the home garden and work with those observations. That's the overarching motto, which is land carers. The overarching colour, when I think of your book, is a beautiful grey-blue and, and shades of green as well, but there's a grey-blue of different bushes and shrubs down here that really dominate. I'm, I'm looking out the window now and I'm looking at the she-oak, which... I swear to God it changes colour, Fiona, at different times of the day and when the weather is dark, it's, it's little pine needles change colour and so much of what we see in our beloved Mornington Peninsula I think reflect those colours and then there's also the limestone base as well which, is, which you just work to an absolute treat. That's right and a, lot of, and a lot of these plants have obviously evolved with that limestone or alkaline soil but it's an interesting observation you make because a lot of those plants have those greyish grayish green sort of hues because of what they've evolved to deal with and that is salt laden winds and so all of that greyish blue tinge that you see is indeed billions of tiny little hairs that protect that leaf surface from the from the elements and I think one of the things about our local indigenous flora down here is that from a sort of broader point of view it can look quite the same in in the sense that it's very sort of finely textured and it's often a greeny sort of grey or or, or blue tinged colour and so what I've done in a lot of my gardens to add interest is not just to prune those plants into interesting shapes but to add other plants that have a similar climatic or ecological fit and so there's plants from New Zealand and plants from the Mediterranean and they add to the palette of texture that you can then use as a designer in the garden space and to to create different moods and so I've never been a purist in terms of you know unless unless that is the brief from a client that it's it's a revegetation project in a very special part of southeastern Australia where it's important to put back what was originally growing but I like to think that I look at plants not necessarily in terms of where they're they're from in terms of Australia but actually what they can deal with so that that's about really sort of careful site analysis and understanding the site so then you can plant match with that site and really incorporate a lot of different species from different parts of the world and so when people say oh you're that native garden person I, I am to a degree because I work a lot with what is indigenous to a particular area but it's also about adding to that to create maybe more interest. And I would imagine too there's a bit of trial and error but that's what good art is all about not everything works brilliantly. Absolutely as long as the trial and, and actual error happens probably more in your own garden rather than a client's <laughs> garden because it's not, it's not good to have lots of failures in a client's garden. So 
I do a lot of experimenting at home, and there's been there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of failures, and there's been unexpected delights as yeah. well. So I think when I started off using a lot of native plants in my garden, the, there was a the native gardens had got a bad reputation in the seventies, or bush gardens as people used to call them, and. People looked at a bush garden in terms of, oh, you can plant it and walk away because it's an it, it's a native, but actually they needed just as much in 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 most circumstances just as much interference as maybe a lavender bush or a, or a rose. And a, a lot of my work has not been sort of I guess intentional intentional in terms of turning that reputation around, but just to really explore what a lot of native plants are capable with and to enjoy manipulating them in the garden and you know and they don't all like being clipped that's for sure some of them have turned up their toes but it's been a lot of fun to investigate the possibilities and sort of push those boundaries and give those plants the reputation that they deserve. Well, the tr- a lot of a lot of the trial and error, as you said, has taken place at your beautiful property, Kakala, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Mm. And indeed, it's one of the thirteen garden properties that make up one of the chapters or the sections of this book. So, the book for listeners, so they can kind of in their minds eye get an idea of with nature by Fiona Brockoff. It's divided into three sections, and the first section is your early influences, garden training. And, uh, and learning to become a garden designer and work with plants. And then in the second part of the book, you explain your thoughts, important principles of design and, and how to go about plots that might be relatively routine and pretty basic and whatever normal might be to some trickier sites. And then the third part of it are the 13 garden profiles. Going to the first section, and I think this is where you kind of got me at the hello because I love to learn how gardeners became their craft or became interested in gardening. There's always an older person in their life, always. There's an older grandmother or Mm. an aunt who had Mm. a big Western District property or Mm. something who's influenced. Mm. And I noticed that in your dedication, in part you say it's in memory of your mum, Neon. Neon, Mm. is that how you pronounce her name? Neon, Neon Brockoff who sowed creative seeds in my life. So tell me about your mum. Was she a keen gardener? She was a keen gardener. I think she probably would have loved to have been an architect, and I talk a little bit about that in the book, but it wasn't a vocation that her father thought would be good for her, being a, being a, a young woman of the sort of 40s. So I think she was probably a frustrated architect and she turned a lot of that attention on to creating a beautiful home and a garden that complemented that home. So we grew up in a 1959 modernist house in Melbourne and it was a modest house and for, for the six people that, that lived there, it was it's actually really quite small, but it was so well designed that you didn't notice that and it wasn't a large garden but it was a very considered one and the garden felt like it was an extension of the house and mum also furnished the gardening colours that she included in the interior spaces as well so there was this lovely sort of connection or marriage between the interior and the exterior along with textures and and material use as well. So we grew up 
spending a lot of time in the garden. We went to Press Hill and... Um, oh, mum... wild, wild school, Fiona, <laughs> wild. Well, We always knew it as the alternative school in well, Melbourne. <laughs> yes, and I think it, it, it definitely had that reputation. Mum's cousin was A.S. Neal, who set up Summerhill in England, and that was a school that was run by children. And creativity was in, encouraged in, in many sort of facets of, of the learning at that school. And so when mum heard about Press Hill that was set up on the same principles as Summerhill, even though it wasn't run by the students, that, that's where we went. And Press Hill was full of encouragement to be creative. And I guess like mum, they didn't really, there weren't a lot of toys on offer, but there was a lot of raw materials. So there was beautiful paints and clay and paper and, and all, all sorts of things that you could involve yourself in in terms of craft. And I, I think I think mum's attitude towards parenting coupled with what was on offer at Press Hill really sort of formed or at least encouraged myself and, and my siblings to be creative. And were you naturally gifted at art? No. No, no. I loved getting my hands into things. So I did a lot of pottery at school and I used to love to paint and draw, but it, it, I wasn't particularly sort of gifted, but spent a lot of time under the trampoline making homes for my pet frogs and really engaging in, in the garden spaces. And Dad used to bring building materials home from the factory and we were allowed to build any amount of cubby houses onto and around our beautiful modernist home. So th- there was a freedom really to be creative and to engage with, with nature and, and the great outdoors without sort of restriction. And I think that really encouraged me to explore possibilities when it came to plants and, and being, being, I guess, artful in a way. Well, another great moment too for you is when you discovered bushwalking and hiking when mm. you were at school. Mm. Uh, certainly for me, we had at our school, we had a really vigorous outdoor ed program, camping trips four days away, six days away, that sort of thing. It just opened up a whole new part of Australia to me and a whole new way of living and, and camping and it made me fall in love with our alpine, our alpine ranges. What are your first memories of camping and being in the bush for the first time and, and how did it impact you? I think it was that completely immersive experience of being surrounded by something that was so much bigger than me in terms of, of nature, in terms of nature and, and, and feeling really sort of submerged in, in that experience. And I've always been drawn to places where nature feels so much bigger than you you know and I think that's a really it's an exhilarating feeling and it's a great leveler isn't it it's a great leveler too and I think you know my love of skiing particularly and and backcountry skiing I I just being immersed in nature like that with the the sense of exhilaration that you have when you speed you know down the hill amongst snow gums is just that's just magic for me so and Timbertop really gave me that that opportunity, even though I'd sort of camped a little bit sort of previously, but having a whole year of bushwalking and collecting rocks and uh, insect collections and plant collections and studying clouds, and it was the first time that I'd really been immersed in, in an experience like that. And I think Timbertop's just the perfect age for 
insolent teenagers, which is definitely what I was becoming. And so to engage kids physically on, on that level in bush situation and for them to live in units where they have to work as a team to do all of the cleaning and, you know, the, the sort of delegation of chores is, is just such a wonderful experience. And Burnley Horticultural College, at the time that you went there, early, early 80s, was uh, and mid eighties was a relatively newish course in terms of a secondary college. It, it had always been a training centre, but was it a, was it a new was it a new kind of course? They'd offered a diploma in applied science in brackets horticulture for a number of years, and that was the course that I had started to do. After two years, they changed it actually into a four year degree, and. I think what I really wanted to study was landscape architecture, but I had heard that landscape architects knew very little about plants and growing plants. And I thought, if you're going to be a successful garden designer, I actually think you need both. You need to understand what plants need to grow successfully in horticultural sort of situations and and how they grow. And you need maybe the sort of training of a landscape architect particularly if you want to work in the public sort of realm. So my idea was to do the course at Burnley and then finish with the course at RMIT. But I got a job after I finished Burnley (laughs) and I'd started off at Melbourne Uni doing an arts commerce degree. So I suddenly went, I think five years is enough. I'm going to work for a couple and see if I still really want to do that landscape architecture course and really never got round to it. And where was the job? Well, the job started at Town and Country Gardens, which was a big retail nursery in Melbourne that a friend's uncle set up with another guy we knew. And they didn't seem to know that much about plants. And (laughs) so Burnley said to me, do you realise you've got another six months industry experience before you graduate? And I went, no, I don't know that. And suddenly there was an opportunity to work at Town and Country Gardens, which I did for six months. And from that six months came another six months and what I did with Town & Country which was just fabulous for me is they developed a landscape design service alongside being a a retail nursery. And And you put you in charge. That's right and so when I finally left about three years later I left with that division and so if they had an inquiry they used to send that inquiry to me and so I I was just so lucky because I really left with sort of Clients. Clients and, you know, and a little bit of a sort of rep, maybe not a reputation, but, you know, if someone walked into the nursery and wanted their garden or landscape designed, Greg would give them, you know, my number and, and off I went. So I think I was really lucky to have that break. I soon after moved to Aubrey and was really thrown into the thick of it because suddenly I was working on a lot of country properties where resources are often quite limited and the climate around Aubrey is really harsh. It's really cold in winter and it's really hot in summer and often water is limited, as is the budget. And so you, you start to think very quickly on your feet using very sort of a very practical mind. Were you doing rural properties, lots people's of rural, personal homes? Yeah, lots of rural properties. My mother-in-law at the time was a very keen gardener so I think she might have pushed me onto a lot of her friends and I really started to do a lot of design work and some of it was on properties just outside of Albury and some of it was 
farm work, gardens sometimes that someone had inherited from a mother-in-law and they wanted to make sort of changes or make it simpler or uh, more resilient. So the, the work was really varied and I definitely didn't want to get that reputation of being that girl from the city that's arrived and is expecting us to, you know, import miles of clipped hedges and, and, and fancy sort of landscaping products. And so I would never have done that really anyway. That doesn't sort of, that approach doesn't sit happily with me. But I started to think about all of the things that often a farmer would have lying around somewhere on the property and it might be a stack of old bricks or, or, or rock that had been excavated from somewhere and it might be some old bridge timbers. And to start to utilise some of those materials in the new garden design. And I think that can also tell a lovely story in terms of developing a sense of place or a sense of belonging for a garden. And character, the character, character of the people. Right. In, instant character too in the sense that, you know, an old brick already has this beautiful patina and once you incorporate that into a garden setting, it makes the garden feel like it's been there for longer than, you know, maybe six months. But also if the rock's from the property, it feels like the rock, right rock to use in in that instance rather than bringing maybe bluestone from the Western District or sandstone from Sydney or something like that, but to use local, local products and then often to use local plants as well can help tell that sort of story of where the garden is actually sitting. And to use some of those local plants or local Indigenous plants in different ways in, in the garden setting. So, you know, it, it might be a shrub that's pruned in a different way to how it might be found in sort of nature. You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. Your property with your partner, David Swan, who is a landscape architect. He is, yes. <laughs> He's a landscape contractor. Contractor, actually. okay. So you well, you complement each other and you have for many years on and off the field, as they say in footy parlance, but your property here at Sorrento, Kakala, is it oozes the character of you both. And driving up the drive for the very first time, the intimacy of the driveway and the plants, and then you you come out to the home and the garden and they can't. They feel equal. They feel equally important. They feel structurally mm. equally important to mm. me, and they just ooze the character of themselves, not necessarily of what is next door or what everybody in the area is doing. It. It's very, very much your landscape, your plot, mm. and your acknowledgement mm. of what mm. you've been given by Mother mm. Nature. Mm. Thank how you. Did, how um, did you find the plot? You you settled there. When did you move there? In the early nineties, was that? Early nineties. I moved to Sorrento at the end of 92 and then I bought the land from my neighbours late the next year. So built the house in 1994 and I built it with a friend, he's a close friend now, Thomas Isaacson, who, who was an architect and a builder. That particularly appealed to me because I really wanted to work with an architect that knew a lot about building so it didn't have to be an extravagant or costly exercise. And I think one of the things about the success of Kakala is the fact that the house and the garden were conceived together. Mm. And Tom is also an architect without ego, which was so lovely to work with. He wasn't interested in putting his own stamp on the house. 
or, dom- or dominating the garden, or dominating the, the garden. Mm. So he he had a love of modernist architecture, as I did, having grown up in a modernist house. And so I had a collection of photographs and pages marked in books that I really that I showed Tom to to help inform him about the type of house that I really wanted to live in. There would have been a bit of Morris influence in there. Quite, I think. quite a lot, <laughs> and you know, and a lot of Q yes, and yes. you know par- parts of Turak. There's a lot of really good modernist architecture in all of those areas. And so Tom came down, he was building a house in Scone at the time, and we spent a weekend together looking at the site and I walked him around the National Park and I showed him some of the neighbouring houses that hadn't weathered all that well, given the fact that, you know, that the environment is really tough for buildings. Well, for people who don't know the area where you are... (laughs) Just hop, skip, and a jump, and there's Bass Strait, and just right. a little beyond Tasmania, there's the Antarctic. That's so right. we're talking about wild weather at times. Yeah, yeah. And the difficult thing can be in a situation like that is, you know, we've got beautiful views over Bass Strait, but it doesn't mean that you want a deck on that side of the house or a lot of windows because, of course, you lose a lot of heat if if you have large windows, you know, facing the southwest. We're lucky because that part of the Mornington Peninsula is very narrow, so we also have beautiful views to Port Phillip, sitting up on on quite a high sand dune. So there were lots of challenges for Tom, I think, and and for me as a as a garden maker. And as I said to Tom, I I don't I want to step lightly on the environment. I don't want it to be a heavy-handed house that makes a big statement. It's really important for me to know that we are working with what we've got, not just climatically, but also aesthetically too, that it's a house that complements the landscape and doesn't work against it. And I think I was really fortunate that Tom really felt that way as well. Anyway, the next year he came down and we built the house. I had another friend who was a builder who moved over from Bowen Heads and another friend who was a labourer and I knew an electrician and in the meantime I was madly stockpiling local limestone so we could make the feature walls which run through the house like a spine and then off that spine are ribs or I guess like sort of arms and they form buttresses that anchor the house out into the landscape and so they do this they they do two things one is that they anchor the house visually but they also provide spaces that are out of the wind so one of the walls hides the cars that arrive in that entrance forecourt but they also give us shelter from the westerlies and I was lucky at the time or around that time to meet David Swan we started landscaping or he started building a lot of my landscapes in Melbourne and then I found out that he was very good at limestone walls. <laughs> so That's a reason to hook up with someone. <laughs> isn't it? And cement the relationship. So David did the he, – he created the beautiful limestone walls and, as we say, cemented the relationship. From, from walls we moved on to landscape and from landscape we moved into sort of love, I think, and eventually children. So it, it was a lucky meeting and, and coupling and, you know, I think alongside that we share a love of bushwalking and camping and skiing. So it's, it's been a successful relationship on well, a number of levels. 
as well as dedicating the book to your mum, you do dedicate it, co-dedicate it to David as well. And I'm sure looking at these pages and these designs, no small part has been played by him. It's a perfect team from, as far as I can see. The 13 gardens, one of them being yours, that you've chosen for the book, what was the premise for the choices? The premise was really that I didn't want to be pigeonholed as, as as a seaside or a coastal landscape designer, which is probably something that has happened in the past and for good reason, that we lived on the Mornington Peninsula and we designed and built a lot of gardens from Summers to Mount Eliza to Portsea, really. And people would often say, oh, you're that, sea, you're that seaside landscape designer or garden designer, and I'd say... Yes, but I do do other things. It's just really that we lived down here and we had young children, so a lot of our work was down here. And what I really wanted to show people by choosing the other gardens in the book is that it's not that I'm a landscape designer that works by the sea only. It's really that we lived down here and that's where a lot of our work occurred. But it's about an approach. It's about working with what you have in terms of a site, in terms of a view, in terms of the soil, the wind, the amount of rainfall. So it's it's a philosophy or an approach to landscape design that's worked around nature. So, you know, really designing with those parameters in mind rather than saying, I want to grow X, Y, and Z. How can we change the soil to accommodate my love of camellias, azaleas, and or something else? And I think for a lot of people, and and I've had this discussion quite a lot recently, particularly a client who wanted a Japanesey garden who lives actually not far far from here in Portsea, and I said to her, I don't think I can give you a Japanese garden as such in Sorrento or Portsea. It, it can't be full of camellias and azaleas and bamboo and Japanese maples because they won't grow. They won't even grow with a lot of intervention. So what is it about that style of garden that speaks to you? What, why are you attracted to having a Japanese garden? And we talked a lot about the type of feeling that a garden like that can can give and the more we talked about it the more I realized that really what she wanted was something that was very green very restful and quite simple in the sense that it was quite pared back and there wasn't too much busyness and I said to her well we can do that using local plants there's no reason in the world it's about which plants we use and then how we treat them in the landscape in terms of maintenance. And so there's not bamboo and there's not Japanese maples, but there is other plants like the local bearded heath that's cloud pruned into a Japanese style plant. So there's a feeling of a zen-like quality that's about right. them. Yeah. That's yeah. right. So it's about giving plants maybe enough space to to be their own sort of personality. Mm. Too often we, we try and torture the landscape, don't we? Yeah. And, and make and it something that we want and it just, right. can't, it just can't give. And that's right. And well, having said that, I mean, a lot, a lot of Japanese gardening is about torture. So there's no reason if you can cloud prune a 
a stone pine, you can also cloud prune a bearded heath, which is a local a local indigenous plant to the Mornington Peninsula. And so I guess it's about sometimes breaking people's sort of perceptions or or opening their eyes to the possibilities of what can be rather than going, oh, well, a Japanese garden is made up of these elements and they won't grow down here, so you can't have a Japanese garden. You can have something that sort of gives the same feeling as a Japanese garden. It's just then about thinking broadly and carefully about what those possibilities are. Well, the choices, uh, the, the gardens that you've chosen are diverse and interesting and they're not all Mornington Peninsula gardens. Mm. And I think particularly for people who live in other states other than Victoria, there is definitely something for all of you to, mm. to embrace mm. in, in uh, your book, Fiona. Some gardening books, it's interesting, some gardening books that are produced out of Queensland or out of Sydney, so often there's a, a real tropical kind of, I don't know, colonial old empire sort mm, of feel mm, about them. Mm. And I think, oh, I don't know how that bougainvillea is going to grow down in in a Melbourne garden where it's nine degrees. Well, I think sometimes in, like, I know, particularly in, say, city environments, that it's often about blurring the outside world or hiding it, isn't it? You don't want to look at the flats next door or the big sort of, you know, bright, street light that's right out the front and so it's it's about disguising the boundaries and I think for me it's about giving some wilderness often in the middle of the city so you can have this enclave or spot where you can you know you can come home and you feel like you can sort of forget about the outside world and so, you know, rather than having a box hedge and a row of iceberg roses, maybe it's about having something that's a bit sort of wild and reminds you of, I don't know, the jungle or being in the bush. Or And I think, I mean, a lot of the gardens that I do in Melbourne feel like that. And sometimes people say, I'm really drawn to tropical gardens. And I go, what what is it about tropical gardens? Is it the colour of the flowers? Is it the size of the leaves? Is it the fact that they're a bit sort of wild and overgrown and, and you feel like they're almost going to come in through the window. And so for me as a designer, it's really about working out why people are drawn to different styles of gardens. The essence. The That's essence right. Of it, yeah. and, and exposing them to the possibilities of, of different landscapes and, and designs. So it's important when you initially meet a client to go to their house because it tells you, or their home, because it tells you so much about their personality. Are they bright? Are they, are they neat? Are they, you know, is it messy? You know, what what is it? Because that, that tells you a lot about their garden expectations as well. And, and so always my first port of call would be to visit someone in their home and, and to visit the site at the same time to really start to understand maybe their personality and what it is that they're going to be drawn to in terms of a garden design. The book, Fiona, takes you from the outside, inside to the writer's desk where you must have spent many, many hours. How did you find the writing process and how did you go about jotting down the structure and writing and attacking the book? I thought about the structure quite a long time ago and I decided I wanted to start with, I guess, my story because I think it it's a really great way of engaging people, but also explaining what you're on about. By the time, you know, if, if you can let people know about your journey, 
they can understand your way of thinking and and where you're coming from from a from a landscape design point of view. I then thought so much I've learnt about design principles. I really want to try and sort of share that in a very sort of approachable way. So, you know, to talk about scale in a way that a home gardener can understand and to talk about materiality and the importance of using materials that are local or at least Victorian. And and that's one of the things I we try and really adhere to in, in our, my practice, to use products that don't have a lot of miles attached to them because the, the world's in a bad enough place without importing slate from India and sandstone from Western Australia. We've, we're lucky in Victoria because geologically it's so varied and so we have access to many different stones and, and, and different gravels products. And I imagine that that part of the book, the middle part of the book, was relatively straightforward because that's like your resource that's in your head and you, you know you can you just you have to articulate it but writing your own story is not always easy mm. you found a beautiful tone in in your book thanks Corey. did you have somebody help you it's really, it's really no i didn't have any help um quite literary in parts actually yeah i i found the first part like my journey with plants my story i found that the easiest i think i found that the slightly more and it's academics the wrong word but talking about the principles of design and doing that concisely. And, and trying to articulate what you see. That's right. And then furnishing that with appropriate images, and I want to talk about the images in a minute, appropriate images to exemplify what I'm talking about. So if you're talking about scale, what are the lovely images that you can use that really explain scale in pictures and not writing? And, and then... The third part of the book is about the 12 other gardens. Ours makes the thir- 13th. And so we picked a number of or chose a number of gardens that really were very different in scale and different in style as well to show people how you can work with the site and sometimes use local native material and lo- local quarried materials and how you can really build a beautiful picture and and a garden that you can use for you, for yourself regardless of where you are. And well, let's talk about the images because we have to pay tribute to Earl Carter, who mm. many of us have grown up with Earl Carter from the early days when he was at Vogue and Harper's mm. Bazaar and different magazines. He's a wonderful photographer and he's really brought to life your gardens, Fiona. Mm. I know. I was so thrilled to be able to work with Earl. He photographed our home garden quite a, f- a long time ago now and I just remember seeing those first images I think it was for Vogue Living and I was just I, I was just so thrilled because he'd really captured the essence of the garden and I don't think I'd seen one of my gardens photographed like that before obviously there's a lot of good photographers out there and after that I just yearned to work with Earl <laughs> so I think I was really fortunate that he agreed to to do the book and I didn't have to give him a lot of guidance. Earl just sort of knows being a very experienced photographer and now and again I'd show him an angle that I thought maybe he hadn't seen 
or I'd make him climb a ladder <laughs> and take, take, get sort of more of a bird's eye view. But um, Well, you've made a beautiful team there. And just finally, before we finish, this is something actually we touched on a couple of weeks ago in an episode we did with Lulu Ellender. Lula is a British writer and journalist, but mm-hmm. she's written a beautiful book called Grounding, which we talked about on the book pod. And it's, a, it's about her Sussex garden and it's mm-hmm. about a garden's ability to restore, nurture and reinvigorate and a place to hide and a place mm. of solace and a place of family and mm. love and events. Mm. And the catalyst is the death of her mother and, it really, and, and also the fact that Lula, uh, they receive, they rent, they've been renting this house for years and they receive a note mm. that they may have to leave because the owners are going to sell. So she's mm. confronted with years of memories in so mm. many different ways. It's mm. beautiful. But you write in in your book, gardening is good for your health and mental well-being. The mere task of tending to a single pot plant on a windowsill can be rewarding. It did remind me of Lula, the same sort of thing. Can you just Mm. tell us about the joy and the pleasure from a mindfulness point of view? I think it's so important in this day and age, isn't it, when there's so many things that we can't, that are out of our control, you know, particularly maybe through a pandemic, that gardening is is one thing that can be so many things for so many different people in so many different ways. And I think as a child, I'd often retreat into the garden. It was sort of my possibility of, of escaping into the natural world where I had pet frogs and, and pot plants and moss gardens and all of those sorts of things. And I think it can be so many different things. For some people, it can be about growing food, which is such a joyful thing to sit down to a meal and know that you might have grown the percentage of the things that you're eating. But to be able to gift some of those vegetables or fruit or, or plants or, or a cutting. And I think we all have lovely memories of people saying, oh, you know, aunt so-and-so gave me that or I had a slip of that plant from a, from a friend who, you know, and it always reminds me of that person. So, you know, gardens can be so evocative in, in so many ways and, and remind people of other people mm. or the, the events that the have past, happened or right. when a tree was planted. And mm. for a lot of people, they're the hardest part of a property to leave. The house can almost sort of be recreated in, in some way and furniture's, you know, taken along on, on the journey. But leaving a tree that you might have planted as a child, as, as an older person, must be is a really difficult sort of experience. And so I think... People, people really, they connect to the garden space because it's something that they have the opportunity of nurturing and changing and controlling in a way too. But you also have this lovely ephemeral nature. They're full of surprises too, of things that self-sow and pop up and trees that will fall over. And garden spaces can be so many things for so many people, you know, depending on, of course, where you, where you live. And, and as we said earlier, not so much for you in clients' gardens, but the joy of trial and error mm. when you put some seedlings in and they take off or something is struggling and you realise that's not the right place for it. You're that's learning right. every day you're in the garden. Yeah. So one final question which we ask all our lovely visitors is, and in your particular case, I'd love to know a gardening book. If you were stranded marooned on a desert island, what gardening book or books or gardening author would you like to have by your side? That's a very good question. And you sure worked, and, you, and when you were in England that. earlier, you were before you 
started up your own business when you were working in England briefly. You were with John Brooks, whose garden books I adore. But I think for solace and magic, I would always have to say Vita Sackville West's newspaper collection, her, her gardening column that she used to write. And if you can ever get your hands on any mm. of it, mm. to anybody listening, mm. if you can ever get your hands on mm. her newspaper columns, they're beautiful. Mm. I think one of the landscape designers I really feel a very strong affinity with is Juan Grimm. He's Chilean and I've met Juan on a couple of occasions but I've also had a look, visited a lot of his gardens in Chile and he is someone, his gardens are poetic. They they work with the natural environment so they use local plants and, and rocks but he takes garden design to another level and so for me... And his books? His books. Do, you, do we have to learn uh, another language to read? No, no, no. <laughs> Luckily he's famous <laughs> enough to be tra- translated into, um, into English. He's a man of few words, but his gardens are sheer poetry. You know, they, they really speak to the soul. He's a real craftsman in that sense and, and a beautiful designer of course, I've got a long list of landscape designers that I love, but I think... They can't all know, be with you. You're no, supposed to be on the island on your own. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, I think I think Juan's a, de- a definite. He's, I'm not sure if he's practising anymore, but he's a designer to look, to look out for, at least his books are anyway. Well, if I was on a desert island with a gardening book, I'd be pretty happy to have your book, Fiona. It is just, it is an honour to have this beautiful book on our bookshelves if you're keen gardeners and if you and in particular if you are in Victoria a lot of gardening books do not come out of Victoria there mm. are quite a few Paul Bangay mm. of course has done a beautiful oeuvre mm. of gorgeous books but it is a very particular climate here and you've mm. honoured that as well as mm. as well as more generally the Australian landscape with nature garden design by Fiona Brockoff published by Hardy Grant Australian-owned Hardy Grant. We love them. We love Um, them. We love them. And Fiona, all the best with the book. I hope it sells many, many copies. Thank thank, you, Corrie. Thanks for joining um, us. Yeah, um, it's been a pleasure and I'm just pleased to have actually given birth to a book. (laughs) 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 I don't have to answer the question anymore. When's the book coming? Thanks, Fiona. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.